excited to be with you this morning. Um, it's really an honor for me to get to deliver the sermon, um, so thank you. And I'm just going to pray again, and we're going to go ahead and read the passage. So, Lord, thank you for your presence among us now. I ask for your blessing as we handle your word and we seek you in this text. Uh, please illuminate the truth that uh, we need today. I pray that you would just guide my words. May they be of you. May they honor you. Amen. So today we're going to look at the story of Hagar, and I'm going to start with reading Genesis 16, 1 through 16. There are Bibles in your pews. I'm reading from the NIV. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she said. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. <coughs> That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named, gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. I grew up not paying much attention to the women in the Bible. There were so few of them that it seemed obvious that they weren't as important that they were just sort of these side characters. And this story about Hagar just seemed like a really odd detour in the main story, basically like this what not to do story, right? So as I've revisited women in the Bible now as an adult, my whole mindset has shifted not only on the women, but also on specifically on Hagar's story. I've learned a lot more about ancient cultures, about their perceptions of women, about the roles that women could play. And now it seems actually incredible to me 
that women are even named and their words are recorded at all. That they make these appearances in the biblical narratives means that they are important. And this story contains something essential that God wanted us to know. It's far more than a what-not-to-do story. In Hagar's story, we are invited to find a living God and to trust in a Savior. This odd detour of a story is actually full of incredible treasure that fills me with hope and wonder. So I want to dig into it a little bit with you today. The story starts with the fact that Sarai is barren. And maybe the first question is, why is Sarah going to suggest Abraham have a son through Hagar? It seems so obvious to us as the reader that this is wrong, this is just a bad idea. And I think it makes it hard to notice anything else in the story, because we already know that God is going to give Sarai a baby. But if we backed up to chapter 15 for a minute and actually looked at that section where God promises Abram a son, at that time, God doesn't actually specify Sarai as the mother. So at this point in their lives, Abram and Sarai only know that Abram is supposed to have descendants. They don't know that it's supposed to be Sarai. So Sarah's idea to offer Hagar as a way to have a son was actually considered a legitimate action back in their time. We can see this custom written into other ancient laws. Barren wives could claim the children of their slaves as their own sons. So I just want you to see that her idea isn't as bizarre and awful as we think of it looking back on it today. Like back then, they could have been making a good faith attempt to bring about God's promise. So even though this was an acceptable cultural custom, obviously, things go south really quickly when Hagar does get pregnant. In verse 4, Hagar begins to despise Sarah, Sarai, and Sarai is not happy. Suddenly, Hagar has status. She has what Sarai wants. That gives the whole power dynamics this totally new shift. There's a lot going on here. In verse 5, Sarai says, Abraham... Abram is responsible for this wrong. And initially, that seems really ridiculous because, like, Sarah, that was your idea. You suggested this whole thing. Um, but some of the commentators I was reading were saying that there is a possibility here that everything is now unclear on Hagar's status. Like, is she still a slave? Is she a wife? Is Abram treating her as a primary wife? So there, there's a lot going on with the hierarchies and who's in, who's in what position that potentially Sarah is being wronged for like her status. So whatever it is, the relationships here are not thriving, and Abraham then clarifies, Hagar is still your slave, do with her whatever you want. So Sarah mistreats Hagar. And that's actually really kind of a mild euphemism of the actual word of what's really going on here, because the same word they use in other contexts to describe Israel's oppression as slaves in Egypt later on. It's also used for Shechem raping Dinah. So, in other words, Sarah is abusing Hagar. And we're only on verse 6, and now we're already seeing a very, very broken state of the world. We've got this dehumanizing treatment. Abram and Sarah just treating Hagar like property. She doesn't have a choice. They always call her slave. They don't name her. And actually, Hagar even means foreigner, so if it is her real name, that's kind of rough. 
Um, then we see Hagar's contempt and derision. We don't know what that looked like, but it's easy for us to imagine. Have you ever had someone who's reached some milestone ahead of you and then really made you aware of that? We've had those times where we've been treated like dirt because we weren't reaching some status that everyone else had. And we see abuse, abuse bad enough to cause a pregnant woman to flee into the desert. There's a lot of pain and suffering going on here. It's ugly and it's raw and it's really common. You know, we can look around our world today and we don't have the same setups, but we can see the similar dynamics playing out in relationships around us, treating people as less, dehumanizing them, retaliating, conflict avoidance, contempt, abuse. If we're honest, we know that in our own hearts we have some of these sins too. It looks pretty hopeless. But we're missing the main character. We're missing the main character in the story. What will happen in verse 7? God enters the scene. And what does God do? God goes out into the wilderness and finds Hagar. Our initial sighting of God in this passage is that of the good shepherd looking for one of his lost sheep. Then God speaks to Hagar. We see God as the word who spoke all of creation into existence, who we might imagine only speaks to patriarchs and prophets. God speaking to the Egyptian slave woman, the foreigner. Isn't that astounding? And in a manner that foreshadows many of Christ's interactions in the Gospels, God starts the conversation with a question, an invitation to Hagar to interact with her maker. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? The first character to say her name in the story is God. I imagine such a gentle tone, full of compassion. An expression that says, I know you completely, and welcomes her response. This God, who is fearsome and awe-inspiring in so many other parts of the scripture, appears to Hagar in a way that is accessible. But then, in the next second, God tells Hagar to return and submit to Sarai. Like, what? What kind of God is this now? I was just seeing God as this wonderful comforter, and he's the rescuer, and then suddenly we've got this God who commands, a God demanding obedience, a God asking Hagar to return to her suffering. That's not what I expected. It's deeply unsettling. It makes you say, why? But Hagar doesn't have my response. She doesn't argue. And in fact, she obeys without question. How is this possible? In verse 9, 11, and 12, God foretells the birth, name, and legacy of the baby she's going to bear. And I can't help but notice the similarities in the structure of how it's spoken to the angel's visit to Mary when I read this. You, know, you are now pregnant. You will give birth to a son. You shall name him, in this case, Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. It seems that God is so large so generous that he can promise things to more than one family. 
Even though this line, Ishmael, is not the line promised to become the nation of Israel, Hagar receives her own form of covenant. God promises blessing to her on the same scale as Abraham. We see a God who loves and cares for each person with this generous abundance. And in this short exchange, we've already seen God in these several different lights, but most importantly, perhaps, are these three things. First, we see that God speaks. Second, we find out that this God hears. Not only does he hear Hagar's response, but Ishmael's name emphasizes this. God hears. And third, Hagar pronounces that this is a God who sees. In verse 13, Hagar does what no one else in scripture does. She names God. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. El Roy. In response to God's instructions and promises, Hagar marvels at who God is. She doesn't focus on what's going to happen to her or ask, ask a bunch of questions about the logistics. She focuses in on the most important thing. She recognizes that she's in the presence of the divine. Even though she's an Egyptian slave woman, the foreigner, the one whose child will not be the patriarch of the people of Israel, she realizes that this God is her God too. God sees her. God knows her by name. And I keep thinking about how God chooses to reveal himself to us through scripture. So nothing is accidental. So God made this very clear choice to reveal these attributes to and through Hagar, an outsider to the faith. As an Egyptian, she maybe grew up with her own set of gods, and here, she recognizes and acknowledges the one true God's capabilities. Seeing, speaking, hearing. Here is a living God. And this is enough for her. She trusts and obeys. Abraham names the boy Ishmael. How did he know to do that? Except that Hagar tells her story. The narrator of Genesis knows the story because Hagar shared her experience, and her story was told and retold. Hagar becomes a messenger of God, a theologian describing God, understanding the significance of what she has witnessed. Here we are, thousands of years later, learning more of who God is through Hagar. Now, if that was all we ever heard of Hagar, it would already be an incredible story. But there is actually more. So I'm going to read the next section, but I'm going to take a drink for it. I don't usually talk for half an hour. So this passage is Genesis 21, 1 through 3, and 8 through 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking, and she said to Abraham, 
Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered into the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his wife, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. As we're practicing seeing God in these passages, the first line in this one, God was gracious to Sarah, just stops me in my tracks now. God is gracious to Sarah. She still gets the promised baby, even though she abused Hagar. As a kid, I never really thought much about Hagar's experience. I lacked the empathy for it. As an adult, I'm horrified. I don't know about you, but personally, I don't feel ready to forgive her for abusing Hagar. We don't get the benefit of seeing any repentance or reparations in the text. We hope that they happen. It makes me realize that my mercy is so much smaller than God's. Especially now when she goes and gets Hagar and Ishmael thrown out. It takes a lot of work for me to try and understand this. I'm really not sure that I do. Especially when God tells Abraham that she's right. Sarah's right. Whatever it was that Ishmael was doing to Isaac, it was threatening Isaac's position. And Sarah knows that Isaac is God's intended son. He is going to make the nation of Israel. Isaac is the one that God is going to use for his covenant people. Sarah's faith earns her spot in Hebrews 11. So obviously I can't view her as all bad. And this just makes me wrestle with my understanding of God. Like, What kind of God do we see here? An exclusive one? A God okay with casting people out? It's a struggle to reconcile God's love for Hagar and Ishmael that we've already seen with a covenant that doesn't include them here. It feels impossible to allow for Sarah's righteousness, but God's forgiveness and mercy are so much greater than my understanding. We have a God here who is not like us, a God beyond us. So Abraham, probably also struggling to understand this incomprehensible God, sends Hagar and Ishmael away, reassured by the Lord's reminder that Ishmael too will become a great nation. God 
has other plans for them. But first they get lost in the desert, they run out of water, Hagar and Ishmael find themselves in dire straits, and Hagar expects her son to die. It looks totally hopeless, again. Again, God intervenes. Again, God initiates the conversation. In this conversation, God says something that comes up repeatedly throughout Scripture. Do not be afraid. Maybe God knows that we really are afraid of things we don't understand. <laughs> we cannot understand God. And yet, God wants us to see that we can trust. God is a Savior. The Spirit brings life. Christ conquers death. Do not be afraid. The Lord reminds Hagar that God is a God who hears just as Ishmael's name declares. In the first passage, God met her near a well, and in fact, the well was named after her experience there. And this time, God now reveals a well to her. This is not insignificant. Wells were treasured places in this geography. Wells were good. Wells were essential for all of life. Wells are consistently important places in this First Testament and in the Gospels. Later on, we'll see Jesus call himself living water when he meets a woman, also a foreigner, at a well in Samaria. So even this geography now, this revealing of the well, sends a message about who God is. In this case, the Lord gives Hagar and Ishmael literal life through this water and reminds her of the promise to make Ishmael a great nation. We see God as the life giver. Throughout scripture, God connects redemption with water. Now we could be tempted to skim over the last two verses as a really quick conclusion that wraps up the story of what happened to Ishmael. He became an archer, he lived in Quran, he got away from Egypt. Cool, the end. But since I had the privilege of coming through this passage multiple times, I finally, it took me a while, it really did, I finally spotted this amazing little phrase right here at the end. God was with the boy as he grew up. Wow. Who else can this be said of? Like Samuel, John the Baptist, Christ himself, as a mother, like God was with the boy as he grew up. That's all I want. And that they would be aware and recognize his presence with them, like Hagar. God's heart desire is to be with us. That's one of his other names, Emmanuel. And here it is right here. God chooses to be with Ishmael, the boy that gets cast out, who doesn't become Abraham's heir, the son of the foreign slave woman. God is big enough to do this great enough to be so generous. And this really shook me, because I spent most of my life, like, casually assuming Ishmael was this terrible person. You know, like, you read the prophecy, and you're like, hostile, wild donkey, yikes. <laughs> like, he was so obviously a mistake, like a bad idea, and then he's mean to Isaac somehow, he's on the wrong side. And yet, all the evidence against these assumptions could not be more clear than right here. God was with the boy as he grew up. No matter how bad of an idea it might have been to try and get an heir this way, God chooses Ishmael 
God redeems. Right here in this very odd and difficult passage, we get to see Emmanuel. So, these Old Testament passages, they're tough to sit with for a long time. When, for one thing, I get this kind of empathy whiplash. You know, you're like, I'm feeling bad for Sarah. Oh, no, I'm feeling bad for Hagar. No, back to Sarah. You know, it's like, what is happening? It's very unsettling. I want to know, like, my urge is to figure out who's right and who's wrong and who's the good person and who's the bad person and what side should I be on. And I want to expend all this energy on that because in the end, I think it allows me to distract myself from the part that really unnerves me. And that's the many aspects of God that I can't seem to reconcile. Amen. And God doesn't allow us to take sides here because the point obviously isn't pitting Hagar and Sarah against each other. The point is that we're supposed to see more of God. So the chosen ones are still broken and sinful people and the non-chosen ones are still recipients of God's goodness and blessing. It's not easy or convenient or understandable. And it forces me back to wrestling with God. I think every day as humans we're fighting to let go of safety and control. To let God be grander than our little boxes. God is like this. God would never do that and only does this. And we want to pick like one way to see God and leave God like that and just view him that way for the rest of our lives. It's like, have you ever seen one of those big photo mosaics and you like think it's like a huge picture of a mountain or whatever and then you zoom in and it's like a thousand pictures and it's like people's faces and there's lions and flowers and you're like, how did all that turn into a mountain? And I kind of think like that's what we're doing here. We're like humans and we picked like one tiny image, like here's the good shepherd and we're gonna stick in that little box. Mm. We have like no idea there's like this whole other picture and then if we find out that next to the Good Shepherd box, there's actually like the judge or like the Lion of Judah, we're like, <gasps> we can't go up there. And jumping from picture to picture is really disorienting to us and terrifying. It doesn't go together. And it's hard for us to zoom out and begin to glimpse the bigger picture of God. And actually, that's why scripture is so helpful, because when you do read these huge swaths of narratives, we get all these images. We start seeing these bigger pictures. It shows us so many facets of God. And it can feel terrifying. We can't mesh them together very easily. But they're there, so what are we going to do about it? Hagar shows us the way. In the complexity and the difficulties of Hagar's experience, God was present to her, seeing her, listening to her, speaking to her. And she recognized that. She was in the presence of the one true living God. She trusted. I want that for us. No matter how confusing God can seem, what we still see so clearly is God's gracious work. We can cling to the truth that God is good that God is trustworthy. God gives life when things look hopeless and messy. My hope is that we would be like Hagar, able to recognize the divine and name it when we see God's presence, resting in trust that God sees us 
and is with us. Let Elroy and Emmanuel be enough for us. May we see the God who sees us, and let this awareness deepen our trust, even when we do not understand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together this morning. Lord, I'm convicted of wanting to take sides, of not wanting to let you be bigger than my own agenda. Lord, I'm comforted that you blessed outsiders, that you know us by name, that you see our troubles, that you act in our lives. Lord, for all of us today, Help us to see your presence, to be aware that you are with us, and to allow our understanding of you to grow deeper, our awareness of you to grow larger. May this give us greater hope and trust. Amen. Amen.